Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening again. Thank you for watching ADH TV, your new home of nightly television. Remember to tell your friends and family how to watch. Just search ADH on your Apple TV app store or the Google Play Store, and it's free to watch. We've got Fred Paul joining ADH next month with a brand new 9 p.m. show. So after me, you'll be able to keep watching on the app. Later, I'll speak with the Queensland Opposition Leader, David Crisofulli. He's no dope. There are many reports circulating up in Queensland asking the question, has Anastasia Palaszczuk checked out? She answered that question on the Logies red carpet by saying she works seven days a week. I don't doubt her commitment to Queensland and never have, but she's been Premier since 2015 and has won three elections. It's a remarkable achievement. Will David Crisofulli face her at the next election or someone else due at the end of 2024? Will he face someone, for example, like the treasurer, Cameron Dick. Well, one thing's for sure, you couldn't have Stephen Miles in the driver's seat. I saw one recent reference to him as an uncouth thug. Should Anastasia Palaszczuk choose to depart politics, she would be going out on top, and that's a matter for her. But speaking of the treasurer, Cameron Dick, this bloke has more hide than Jesse the Elephant. Yesterday, he handed down the Queensland budget where, surprise, surprise, thanks to coal mining royalties and slugging gambling companies, revenue is flowing in. Without mining and resources, we can't pay for schools, roads, hospitals and special care. That is the truth. Cameron Dick confirmed that yesterday. These woke left-wing politicians, Labor and the Greens, always stick the boot into coal-fired power, yet, come budget time, they're forced to admit that without that revenue, they'd be stuffed. Well, yesterday he announced coal mining royalties will be increased as part of a new three-tier system. A point of consumption tax on wagering companies will lift from 15 to 20%, and a mental health levy will be introduced on 5,500 businesses. I'll be discussing with David Crisofulli, the Treasurer's statement in October 2020, when he said in Cairns unequivocally, quote, there won't be any increased taxes. He was in the middle of the election campaign. There won't be any increased taxes. Well, Mr Dick has defended the coal royalty hike. Quote, the increase in coal prices has been unexpected and we think it's fair. The unexpected boom should benefit not just shareholders, but the owners of the resource, the people of Queensland. Well, I think that's a fair point. But at the same time, it's not what he said in order to win the election. Queensland's total debt, including government-owned corporations, will reach an eye-watering $128 billion by July 2026. But hey, it's apparently unfashionable to care about debt anymore. Everywhere you turn, both here and overseas, the economic wall is showing cracks. Now, you can always have your say. I'd be interested in your thoughts, debt or anything else. Email me, Jones at adh.tv. Well, look, even though the lights are on, if you drive through our capital cities, you would wonder whether or not there was an electricity crisis. We've got lights on everywhere, but make no mistake, this crisis is far from over. In my view, it's just beginning. There are three simple points above all others. What is the problem with carbon dioxide, the source of all plant life? That is never debated. We were told there was global warming, we were told there was climate change, 
but no one up front is prepared to enter the ring on the issue of carbon dioxide. In fact, they seek to disguise the truth that carbon dioxide constitutes 0.04% of the atmosphere. The second point's just as simple. Renewables now, and certainly not by 2030, won't be able to provide our energy needs. But there are people in our parliaments who want 100% renewables by 2030. The third point is that there are hundreds of coal-fired power stations being built around the world. High efficiency, low emissions. They call them heli, coal-fired power stations. And we've got enough coal in the ground to last thousands of years. But we've bought this religion, which doesn't matter to some countries, but to us, it destroys the fabric of our economic strength. We're a massively energy-rich country, now prevented by ideology from taking advantage of our resources. For the last week, the availability of energy has been taken out of the hands of the private sector, an outfit called the Australian Energy Market Operator made an unprecedented intervention, taking complete control of the East Coast energy market. Now, this is Soviet-style Soviet style stuff, but the federal government supports it, saying the energy market has failed. Well, it failed because of public policy, the demonisation of coal-fired power. But it's even worse than that because while the chief executive of the Australian energy market operator, by the way, this mob have a budget of about how much? 250 million, everything's millions. Anyway, they were talking this week to quote unquote, the market, that is the electricity generating business, which provides the stuff that enables, us, that enables us to turn the lights on, enables business to stay in business. But a cap was put on the price at which the generator could sell electricity to the retailer, $300 a megawatt hour. But with the cost of coal going through the roof, this Soviet-style intervention was asking the electricity producers to produce electricity for us at a price that would send many electricity generators broke. This $250 million outfit, the Australian Energy Market Operator, was last week issuing more than 100 directions a day to the energy producers. How'd you like to be in that game? Does this sound like a crisis? Simply, renewable energy can't do the job but the coal producers have virtually been kicked out of their job. Last night I was reading an almost unreadable report from the International Energy Agency. They are the real world authorities, full of jargon and advocacy for renewable energy. But even this mob have said under a headline, and the headline massive renewable heat has gained some policy momentum, but its market share is not set to increase significantly, unquote. That was the heading. It then added, are you listening, Anthony Albanese, Matt Keane, and all you empty-headed advocates? I think Matt Canavan uncharitably called them the other night morons. The International Energy Agency forecasts up to 2026 and says bluntly, quote, fossil fuels are set to continue meeting much of the growing global demand for heat, unquote. What are we doing? We've got coal beneath our feet and mindless ideology is preventing us from taking advantage of the energy resources that have been the source of this country's wealth. At what point do we say enough is enough? Matt Ridley was a former member of the House of Lords, actually Viscount Ridley, Lord Ridley. He is a superb academic, unlike the Keynes of this world and the renewable energy apologists who give the impression that they've read nothing. 
He was the science editor of The Economist magazine. When all this global warming and renewable energy nonsense was at its peak and the new religion was converting people to its cause, either through their ignorance or intimidation, Ridley wrote, quote, here's a quiz, no conferring. He said, to the nearest whole number, what percentage of the world's energy consumption was supplied by wind and power in 2014, the last year for which there are reliable figures? He said, was it 20%, 10% or 5%? He answered, none of the above. It was 0%. That is to say, to the nearest whole number, there is still no wind power on Earth, unquote. And he made the point from the International Energy Agency's 2016 key renewable trends, quote, wind provided 0.46% of global energy consumption in 2014, and solar and tide 0.35%, unquote. Now that's total energy provided by wind and solar worldwide, not just electricity, which is less than a fifth of all final energy. But interestingly now, when you read these reports and the latest I was reading last night, Renewables 2021, they cleverly omit to tell you exactly how much of the energy supply comes from renewables because they're embarrassed by the figures. They keep talking about growth, though they do admit that renewables share of global heat consumption, their words, is only, I repeat only, forecast to rise from 11% in 2020 to 13% in 2026. So where is the other 87% of our energy needs going to come from? Even this mob, the International Energy Agency, provide the answer, quote, fossil fuels are set to continue meeting much of the growing global demand for heat. Can we rip up our national economic suicide note immediately? I'll have more to say about the renewable farce tomorrow night. Well, look, as I said last night, the New South Wales and Queensland budgets were delivered on the same day. One Liberal in New South Wales, one Labor in Queensland. What was the difference? None. The spending and debt are crazy in New South Wales. The predicted budget deficit this year, 11.3 billion. That is spending more than you raise. And a laughable estimate that the budget will be back in surplus in 2024-25. But the net debt in New South Wales has gone from 37 billion last financial year to 115 billion in 2025-26, an increase of nearly 200%. And the Treasurer, Matt Keane, says this is a budget for families and kids. What nonsense. They're the ones who will be paying off the debt and paying off the federal debt as well. I haven't discussed the first home buyer's choice of paying stamp duty up front or switching to a land tax, other than to say if this is meant to be tax reform to eliminate stamp duty, it is a long way off. And first home buyers will be entitled to be confused. If they opt for the land tax option, which could be as high as $3,000 a year, that will then reduce the amount the homeowner would be able to borrow. So I'm saying to them, take care. Well, then we entered the fairyland of Queensland budget projections, a deficit this coming year of more than a billion. But again, 2024-25, there'll be a surplus. That's if you believe in tooth fairies at the bottom of the garden. How do you get to a surplus? Well, it's the Labor government. They demonise coal and gas, fossil fuels. We want them out of the way by 2030, except that the high prices for coal, oil and liquefied natural gas have poured money into the Queensland Treasury coffers. 
Then with burgeoning house prices, where the Gold Coast has seen some of the highest growth in Australia, stamp duty revenue was more than $9 billion greater than it was in the previous year. But governments being government, they can't wait to spend it. Don't be fooled in Queensland by government debt because there's a stack of debt held by government corporations, to say nothing of the state government's superannuation liabilities. But when there's debt, you have to borrow and interest rates are going up. So will the Queensland government's borrowings from 54 billion last financial year to an estimated 87 billion in 2025-26. This is a rise of more than 66%, which I suppose beats New South Wales, whose net debt in the same time has climbed 200%. Remember, taxpayers have to confront this along with unconscionable levels of federal debt. I can sum all this up in two sentences. To state and federal governments, stop and turn around, you're going in the wrong direction. Well, thankfully, there's a new leader of the opposition in Queensland after a disgraceful performance at the last state election where the Labor Party won four seats and the coalition lost five. David Christofuli and his team will have to win 13 seats to win government. But the way things are going, David Christofuli can do it and break the Labor stranglehold on governments across Australia. And he joins me tonight. David, thank you for your time. D David, can we just first go to that press conference by the Treasurer Cameron Dick in Cairns during the election, October 2020, and he was asked on taxes, are you ruling out new or increased business taxes? As I said, day three of the election campaign, and the Treasurer Cameron Dick said, quote, there won't be any increased taxes. We've said that very clearly from the start. No new taxes from the Labor government if we are re-elected. David Christofuli, is it a terrible thing to ask, but are we being run by people who are slippery with the truth? It's one of the greatest breaches of faith I've seen, Alan. He was deliberately asked on 26 occasions, and on 26 occasions he ruled out any new or increased taxes. You've hit the nail on the head. The press conference you're referring to was in far north Queensland. And somebody said to him, does that relate to business? And his answer was no new or increased taxes. He's now saying today that because in his answer, he didn't say the word business, therefore it doesn't relate to business. What an absolute disgraceful comment. They are broke and they are going after anything that isn't bolted down to have a crack at. Now, this nonsense that somehow you can just keep on throwing taxes willy-nilly, hell west and crooked, and that it doesn't impact everyday Queenslanders, just really sad. It's sad that a government would breach people's faith. They knew it before the election. They were slippery with the truth. And is it any wonder there is a conga line of people criticising them because taxes and fees and charges are going up and service levels in Queensland continue to go down. We have the worst hospital system in the nation, ambulance ramping at 42%. We've got the worst youth justice laws. We have road backlogs with projects blowing out and maintenance backlog of $6 billion. And we have a housing crisis where people are living in their cars. What a disgrace. Mm. Well, just coming back to that point for the benefit of our viewers, yesterday's budget whacked business in Queensland with three new or increased taxes, a $1.2 billion hike in the rate of coal royalties, an $80 million hike raising gambling taxes, and $425 million by 2026 from a mental health levy on big business. Now, David, some of them might be defensible, but surely they are broken promises. Spot on they are. And when he categorises as big business, 
you're talking about increasing a payroll tax of anyone with a wages bill of over 10 million bucks. That's people who employ around 100 Queenslanders. Now, I know a lot of people have had a red hot go in their life and they employ good, hardworking, honest Queenslanders. They're not people who you know, are, are swashling around. In many cases, they are small and family business owners who have put everything on the line and they might employ 100 Queenslanders and to categorise them as big business is a little bit disingenuous. Mm. You Look, hit the nail on the head. Yeah. I just want to come back to this because this bloke is likely to be the next Premier if they were, if Anastasia Palaszczuk were to go, this Cameron Dick. And I just want to repeat, he said, the people of our state, this was his offence, knew what I was saying when I said that. And what he said was, there won't be any increased taxes, no new taxes from the Labor government if we are re-elected. Now, I'm sorry, if the people of Queensland are going to be run by people who are really scarce with the truth, everybody's in trouble. And he's been mauled today for that, Alan, and I, I'm i quite pleased to see the way that people have stood up and said, no, mate, sorry, uh, you were asked many times and you ruled it out. And yeah. unfortunately, we live in an era where uh, people think they can say one thing and do another. But in life and in politics, if you want to have any form of credibility, you've got to look people in the eye and say, well, this is our intention and this is why and be honest with them. Yeah, he was right. deliberately loose with the truth and he is getting categorically mauled. And today in the parliament, he was his answers were disgraceful. And you want to know who the most embarrassed person is about the government's budget? The government. Not one of them this morning did one single interview on television, on radio, on your show at all. They attended a lunch today where they didn't invite the media. There was a table at the back of the room that was vacant that was supposed to be had uh, full of media. They didn't bring them along. They are embarrassed. They are running away from their record. They are a government in the third term. They want people to vote from another two times before you see some of these new hospitals that they're talking about being built can't plan, they can't deliver, they can't be trusted. They are a government in the death throes and Queenslanders have had enough. Well, just on coming back to the point that you make, I mean, the simple thing was, uh, to, for him to answer, couldn't he have said, well, look, hang on, uh, yes, I did say that, but I've changed my mind because there's been a big increase in revenue from massive increases in coal prices and I don't think that should go to shareholders. D do you have a view about that? Should all those massive increases in coal prices go to shareholders or is the tax are entitled to some of it. You've hit the nail on the head. If he would have stood up and said, this is what I promised, I got it wrong for this yeah, particular yeah, reason, yeah. I reckon the everyday Queenslander would look and say, you know what, we all make mistakes. But their problem is they can't be trusted with anything. And you only have to look at the integrity crisis that's burning through them. Yeah. We've now got the triple C looking at the way that lobbyists run the show, operating out of government-funded headquarters. They really are in a spot of bother because they just can't tell the truth anymore. But it's got to the stage where, where, where Queenslanders have worked it out. And this is a classic example. They, they are so twisting and contorting themselves that they are incapable of actually looking people in the eye and say, hey, look, we got it wrong. Yes. But the reason why they yeah. can't is they didn't get it wrong. They knew exactly what they were doing before the election. They told the bald-faced lie, and now they're in a big, big spot of Well, now, to, to the dishonesty, you've got to add hypocrisy because coal royalties are stuffing the budget full of cash, but the same Labor people want the coal out of the equation by 2030. What can you tell the people of Queensland about the private sector vis-a-vis -vis the government? I mean, if they won't lend to the private sector for a heli coal plant, high efficiency, low emissions coal plant, would your government build 
a high efficiency, low emissions, coal-fired power station in order to keep the lights on. Alan, you've hit the nail on the head. They spend every waking hour demonising the mining industry, not just coal, the mining industry in general. If you look at the left, they hate anyone who wants to extract anything out of the ground. They hate anyone who wants to grow things. They hate farmers as well. They won't build new dam facilities. You just mentioned about coal-fired power. During last week, when there was the risk of blackouts, 80% of Queensland's energy on one particular day came from coal, 80%. Now, they run around and they demonise, but in the end, energy's got to be a few things. It's got to be affordable, reliable and sustainable. They're the three elements of it. You've got a whole generation of people who don't think two of those apply. Well, I'm afraid to tell you the pensioner who can't afford to turn her heater on tonight thinks affordability is pretty important. The business owner who wants to produce something thinks reliability is pretty important. It's not all about sustainability. That's one part of the equation. And you know, Alan, I've always been of the view that there is there is a place for us as a society to be talking about doing everything we can for the environment. Absolutely. But there is a generation of people who are just cannot see the wood for the trees. But there are other elements to energy generation that are important, including being able to pay for it and making sure it's bloody there when you need it. Mm -hmm. Wonderful stuff. Just a quick one before you go. That's very, very good stuff. We need to talk more often. But um, just in terms of you coming with an election 2024, just a quick one. Uh, They they provided $23.6 in health spending. New hospitals in growth areas like Toowoomba, Coomera on the Gold Coast, Bundaberg, and 2,200 hospital beds for Brisbane, Cairns, Townsville, Mackay. Given the fact that the population in Queensland is increasing and the number of Queenslanders aged 65 and over will grow from about 865,000 to 1.3 million, which is an increase of 50%, what can your coalition say to that voting cohort? That the bulk of the money of these so-called hospitals are in the never-never and you're never-never going to see them unless government changes. This government's been in power for seven years and they have destroyed the health system. When they came in, ambulance ramping was at 15%. Today it is at 42%, the worst in the country. They are now asking for another seven years before they deliver a hospital. I'll give you a number in the northern end of the Gold Coast that shows you just how dire it is. The Australian Medical Association says today, right now, we have a shortage of 500 beds on the Gold Coast alone. This plan is for 400 beds, and the earliest we are going to see it is at the end of this decade. They can't plan, they can't deliver, they will not fix the health crisis, and until government changes, you are going to continue to have Queenslanders dying in their loved ones' arms and people waiting at the end of a ramp because inside the hospital is a whole heap of doctors and nurses who are stressed and strained and broken behind a system that has collapsed. Mm. Good to talk to you. To our viewers, I just say, you see, when you listen to people like David Christofuli, you've got a metaphor of why governments have to change. And it's clear that the people in Queensland are just tired. You need the kind of energy and interest and inclinations that he has shown tonight. David Christofuli, thanks for your time. We'll talk again. Thank you, Alan. God bless. You too. Very impressive. David Christofuli, the leader of the opposition in Queensland. Look, we're not alarmist on this program, but we do say things as they are. With undeniable Chinese expansionism in our region, significant instability in Europe and appalling leadership amongst the democracies, national security is going to be a big issue for us. We have to avoid the posturing 
and face reality. You will recall I spoke to Greg Sheridan last month. He writes with great clarity about the issue of national security. The first point that I've made for years is that you cannot have national security without economic security. And that's why running up a trillion dollars of debt is shameful and unforgivable. Greg Sheridan wrote earlier this year, and I quote, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the most powerful, shocking wake up call to Western strategic complacency since the end of the Vietnam War, unquote. He went on, Australia, despite the lofty rhetoric, shows no signs of taking this historic wake up call seriously, unquote. And then this, quote, of all the nations in the Western Alliance, we are long term amongst the most vulnerable and the least prepared, unquote. He wrote ominously, quote, the Australian Defence Force is almost insanely structured to meet none of our strategic needs. And, quote, not one of our services, Navy, Air Force or Army, has any strategic strike power. Every one of our defence programs is in disarray or scheduled to deliver capability so far into the future that it's in the realm of science fiction. He wrote, and I quote, Canberra spends nearly 600 billion, B for billion, and produces neither a warship nor a missile cell. And to the president, Greg Sheridan wrote last month, the sighting of the China Solomon Islands Security Treaty is a very bad day for Australia. One of the worst days for our national security since the end of the Vietnam War. He said, there's no doubt this is an epic failure of Australian policy, unquote. So while we face an energy crisis undermining our economic strength, where is the a sensible debate about national security that isn't full of rhetoric and platitudes? We hear a word or two from time to time about submarines. Yet the submarine acquisition process is a complete shambles and the chance of getting anything significant from it is remote. Tony Abbott talked about leasing submarines, but there seems to be a disposition in Canberra to make them all in Adelaide. We'll see nothing for 20 or 30 years. Greg Sheridan again put it splendidly when he argued, quote, in the history of human habitation of this continent, nothing remotely comparable in complexity to building a nuclear submarine has ever been attempted. He said, no living Australian Prime Minister has commissioned a submarine that actually got built, unquote. We'll enter into this debate the University of Melbourne's Deputy Vice-Chancellor International, Professor Michael Wesley, who today is arguing that Australia is, quote, dangerously unprepared for future threats, thanks to bungled defence procurement, run-down foreign policy and diplomatic capability, and the weaponising of national security for political purposes, unquote. That about sums it up. Professor Wesley, who I might add, was born in India, came here with his parents at four, grew up in Nambour in Queensland and went to the Nambour State High School. So well done, sir. But he said that he's, quote, really worried about the situation confronting Australia during a time of growing strategic competition and uncertainty, unquote. Now consider this. The Australian government is not talking to the leadership of the government in China. We've seen squabbling over fighter planes from China and Australia in the South China Sea early this month. Beijing's deal with the Solomon Islands, which would allow China to send troops into the island nation and China rallying other Pacific Island nations to sign further security deals. Well, Professor Wesley concedes that the new Defence Minister Richard Miles 
meeting with his Chinese counterpart was a good start, but there would never be, he said, a return to the warmth the two countries, Australia and China, once shared. Professor Wesley said disturbingly, quote, there's simply too much water under the bridge now. And in the most simple warning that could be given, Professor Wesley, who leads the University of Melbourne's international engagement, said he remained concerned about Australia's readiness to deal with future threats. Well, it echoes the discussion I had, I had earlier this year with Greg Sheridan, who argued on this program, quote, for the past 15 years, defence policy has been characterised by epic announcements and dismal failure to deliver, unquote. Question, will this change under an Albanese government? Tell me what you think. Email me, Jones at adh.tv. Well, look, in a politically uncertain world, I suppose we in Australia could say that with a change in government here, things were a little quieter. But notwithstanding Royal Ascot, Wimbledon, the Test Cricket and the British Open Golf, things are certainly not politically quiet in Britain. Let's go to the political editor of the Express Online. Now, you can keep up to date by reading David Maddox at express.co.uk. He's a great read. Express.co.uk. David, same old story, Boris. Firstly, what's the story about Boris wanting to give a job to the mistress when he was foreign secretary, and that was so-called nipped in the bud? Well, uh, it's a, there's a bit of a mystery around this because uh, the first edition of the Times on Saturday had this story on its front page, all big letters and uh, you know full details. But we got by the time we got to the second edition, the story had been completely expunged, and uh, uh, the uh, it was, there was no sign of it on the website. And uh, apparently there was a, a call made from Downing Street to uh, have it removed. Now, we're not entirely sure why it was removed, because the, um, the journalist involved, who's an award-winning journalist, a chap called Simon Walters, has stood by the story and said uh, it all stands up. So basically, uh, it's the idea that Boris, uh, well, before he married Carrie Johnson, his, his, his wife, when she was still his mistress, tried to give her a hundred grand a year job, you know. Um, as you do, as you do. it all leads into this <laughs> kind of idea of cronyism and corruption and uh, yes. uh, it's, it's not a good look. Not a good, <laughs> Let's put not it like a, that. And, well, yeah. now, talk about a good look. I mean, now, what is this about Conservative MPs already sending letters to the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, almost immediately after the Prime Minister survived his vote of confidence and the letters are designed to trigger a vote of confidence in Boris Johnson in 12 months' time. Now, where are we on that, along with, I might a double-barrel question here, the resignation of the Prime Minister's mm. ethics advisor, Lord Geet? And <laughs> I must I must say, David, I would have thought an ethics advisor is a contradiction in terms in politics. Is there any ethics left in politics? But anyway, where has this put Boris Johnson, both these issues? Well, I have to say, uh, to lose one ethics advisor is bad, but this is actually the second ethics advisor he's <laughs> lost in the year. And uh, uh, it's, uh, there's a suggestion of it because uh, there's not many ethics to advise on in the street at the moment. But uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it was a strange one, that was, because uh, the 
we were all expecting this FX advisor to go over the fines, over the uh, the, the dodgy parties, and over the, the rule changing uh, it, because Boris changed the rules for uh, so he wouldn't have to resign uh, for lying essentially. Um, and he didn't go for that. He put in his letter that it was an argument over steel production and uh, and steel uh, protectionism, which uh, completely um, completely kind of uh, surprised us all, actually. But uh, we, we'll we'll see because there, there was some suggestion that uh, the Conservative Party has been receiving donations from major steel uh, producers, so. It, it might be on that. But, I mean, clearly it all feeds into the whole party gate yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and so they are, and, and so, so they are writing well. letters, aren't they, to Sir Graham Brady, getting ready for 12 they months' are, time? They are writing letters, yeah. They, they're definitely writing letters. Basically, he, the rules are that he has a year, uh, and a lot of MPs, uh, Conservative MPs, have decided, well, we might as well get the letters in now. Uh, so we have the vote in the years. But time. I mean, but I mean, uh, it, actually, a lot more have gone in uh, as a result of he snubbed a conference of Northern MPs. Well, that, that, so yeah, that, that, let me come to that. Let, let me come to that conference because yeah. the Prime Minister is going to fly out to Rwanda, I think, tomorrow to this Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. Yeah. So he'll be out of the country when there are two by elections on on Thursday in Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton. Now, how are backbenchers mm. responding to the Prime Minister flying off? with Tory MPs unhappy, and as you said, the Prime Minister has snubbed a Northern Research Group conference in Doncaster. Now, these are Northern MPs in the so-called red wall seats, yeah. which gave him a slashing majority at the last election, and they're saying it's reminiscent of Margaret Thatcher travelling to Paris to celebrate the end of the Cold War in 1990 in the middle of a leadership yeah. challenge. When she got home, she was out of the Prime Ministership. Is that comparison with Boris Johnson valid? Well, they're, they're certainly making that comparison. And the, the, it was infamous in 1990. Margaret Thatcher flew out to this big kind of uh, shindig in Paris, expecting to, to win and remain prime minister. And Michael Heseltine, if you remember him at the yep. time, was challenging her. And uh, she uh, came back and... It was all over. Her cabinet yeah. told her, you haven't got enough votes, you're out. And uh, Heseltine didn't win in the end. We ended up with John Major, who's one of the worst prime ministers in our history. But anyway, let's uh, move I agree. on from that. But, but, are, but they, are these they, Northern they, MPs dirty yeah. that the prime minister now has missed the chance of going to that conference in Doncaster, yeah. talking to 35 of his MPs, raise morale, discuss ideas? Yeah. Now, I read a report that, I mean, apart from being stupid and strategically dumb, I mean, why wouldn't he have mm. gone? But then you were reporting that MPs were getting texts in the morning to say that the Prime yeah. Minister was on a train heading to Doncaster, which was obviously a lie. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it clearly was. And their, their excuse was he, he flew out to Kiev, or Kiev, I should say, to see uh, President Zelensky. And of course, you know, there are lots of pictures of him there and you say it's very important. Actually, politically, it was more important for him to be in Doncaster with these MPs. These are important MPs in seats he needs to hold on to. These were people who were, a lot of them were loyalists. A lot of them no longer loyalists. They, they saw it as a direct snub, actually. Mm. They thought that there was no need to do the, the second mm. Ukraine trip. No. And uh, you know, it, and and it was all because 
he didn't want to talk about the difficult things about we you know with this concept of leveling up which is yes. kind of improving the poorer parts or less invested parts of the country yeah. and uh and and essentially avoid some difficult conversations and well, uh yeah, going to Kiev is a, is a long way to avoid a oh, yeah. conversation. So, uh, who's advising this bloke? I mean, strategically, it's just dumb. But on the other side, is Starmer in trouble? Now, you've seen a new dossier revealing as many as 16 Labor MPs received donations over the last 10 years from the National Union of Rail, Maritime mm. and Transport Workers, and they are responsible for yeah. the Tuesday strikes. Firstly, David, how bad have the strikes been? The strikes have been horrendous. Uh, the rail network uh, was brought to a halt across the country yesterday. Uh, we're going to have another strike tomorrow, and basically that means we have disruption all week. And uh, the, the tube network, for, for your uh, viewers who are familiar with London, was at a halt, complete halt yesterday. Amazing. So Amazing. all of us had to work from home. And, and then start. And, uh, yeah. Well, Starmer yeah. threatened to punish Labor MPs who joined the picket yeah, lines, and they ignored him. Uh, but they ignored him. Now, he said, we don't want to see these strikes going yeah, ahead. Including, including, his, including his deputy leader ignored him. Yeah, Angela Rayner. Yeah. So, um, and this all feeds into the fact that the knives are out for Starmer as well. Nobody thinks he's up to the job. Uh, most of the Labor people think that the only reason that Boris is still in the, in, in the game as such is because Starmer can't land a killer blow. Labour about six points ahead, but everybody knows that can be overturned quite easily. And, uh, you know, they just don't think he's got it. Well, on that basis then, I mean, you and I have talked now for some weeks about Boris being in trouble and Boris is going to be replaced because the Conservatives can't win the next election whenever it might be. But in the light of these revelations today, about the Labor Party and significant people in the Labor Party taking stacks of money. I mean, Angela Rayner, the deputy, I think, has taken £189,000 from unions in terms of funds to support her campaigns and so on. Are the British people going to replace a Conservative government for a Labor Party that's in thrall to this extent to the union movement? I... I find it very difficult to to believe, and actually, the this uh, this union militancy, which kind of reminds us of the nineteen seventies, actually, is uh, is really helping the Conservatives out. I mean, I think Boris must be toasting behind the door in Downing Street because it's really letting him off a hook for, for some of the things he's done, and it, it just find it very hard to believe. But the trouble is, I look at the polling, and actually, the the uh, public are increasingly saying a plague on both your houses. Yeah. You know, the last poll we ran over the weekend had a quarter of people saying they wouldn't vote yes. at all because they can't. Yeah, it's not compulsory. Can't stand either. Either. Just on voting before yeah. you go. Just on voting before you go. Two by elections um, in in um, um, you know on Thursday. What's going to happen? Both conservative seats. Yeah, both Conservative seats. The likelihood is that the Conservatives are going to lose both. They'll definitely lose the one in the north of England in Wakefield, which is another reason Boris probably avoided going to the north of England <laughs> the other day because yeah. he'd have had to go to Wakefield. Yes. Uh, not been very popular there. Uh, there. There is some talk they might hold on to the one in the southwest of England, uh, Tiverton, Honiton, but 
I'd be surprised. Most people would be surprised. But go, they're going to get a kicking yeah. on Thursday. But you see, Thursday is a, is a significant day as well because it's the anniversary, the sixth anniversary of the Brexit referendum, the great kind of victory of getting out of the EU for Boris. And uh, so the whole optics of losing that day are going to be, are going to be quite right. bad, Absolutely. Actually. Well, let's have, yeah. a yarn. let's have a yarn about that next week, David. Always good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy your English summer. We're very jealous yeah. of you. Wonderful things we're happening. Enjoy the test. We're <laughs> enjoying the test with cricket anyway. Yeah, that, that, uh, but but hang way. on. Hey, we won, we won the big sprint race at Royal Ascot. <laughs> 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 there you are. Won all. Won all. There we are. There he is. We Won love him, don't we? Yeah. David, David Maddox. And he'll be back with us next week. Look, people must be asking today whether there are rules for some and rules for others. You'd have to be parked up a log somewhere for many months to not know that a man has been accused of raping a former Liberal staffer in Canberra's Parliament House and will face trial as a result. The lady in question, Brittany Higgins, was first interviewed on Channel 10 by Lisa Wilkinson. Since the accused has been charged, there has been a lot of public discussion about the case, such that the ACT Supreme Court has indefinitely delayed the case as a consequence primarily of what Lisa Wilkinson said at the Logies ceremony on Sunday night. The accused has pleaded not guilty to the charge of sexual intercourse without consent. He's an ex-Liberal staffer whose legal team said last year that he, and I quote, absolutely and unequivocally denies that any form of sexual activity took place, unquote. Well, the ACT Supreme Court was told on Tuesday that Lisa Wilkinson was warned last Wednesday by the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, that the defence could issue a stay application, quote, in the event of publicity, unquote, around the allegations concerning Brittany Higgins. In fact, a note of that discussion between the ACT DPP Drumgold and Lisa Wilkinson was allegedly read aloud to the ACT Supreme Court by Justice McCallum. Justice Lucy McCallum told the court, quote, notwithstanding that clear and appropriate warning Upon receiving the award, Ms. Wilkinson gave the speech in which she openly referred to and praised the complainant, unquote. The Supreme Court Chief Justice in the ACT, Lucy McCallum, told the Supreme Court there yesterday that Wilkinson had not heeded the advice, unquote, openly referred to and praised the complainant in the present trial, unquote, in her acceptance speech. Reports today suggest that Justice McCallum warned yesterday that the significant publicity had now, quote, obliterated the distinction between an allegation and a finding of guilt, adding, quote, unsurprisingly, the award and the content of the speech have been the subject of further commentary, unquote. Justice Lucy McCallum went on, the recent publicity does, in my view, change the landscape because of its immediacy, its intensity, and its capacity to obliterate the important distinctions between an allegation that remains untested at law and one that's been accepted by a jury giving a true verdict according to the evidence. Unquote. Tellingly, Justice McCallum argued, the public at large is given to believe guilt is established. The importance of the rule of law has been set at nil. Argued Justice McCallum, what concerns me most about this recent round is that the distinction between an allegation and a finding of guilt 
has been completely obliterated in the discussion of Sunday and Monday. The implicit premise of Wilkinson's speech is to celebrate the truthfulness of the story she exposed, unquote. Lawyers for the accused argued yesterday that the case has been prejudiced by Wilkinson's remarks, which they said endorsed the credibility of Ms Higgins' allegations and clearly represented a contempt of court. It has to be remembered when we talk about rules for some and rules for others, that Wilkinson was warned last Wednesday by the ACT DPP that the defence could issue a stay application in, quote, the event of publicity around Ms Higgins' allegations. Yet, reportedly, Lisa Wilkinson spoke about the matter again in the Logies media room. Her comments were further discussed on Sydney Radio on Monday morning, and the ABC reporter Louise Milligan, who attended the awards night, took a photo with Wilkinson and posted it onto social media, passing on her congratulations to both the TV presenter and Miss Higgins. In the light of the very plain speaking by Chief Justice Lucy McCallum yesterday in the ACT Supreme Court, where she warned that, quote, the distinction between an allegation and a finding of guilt has been obliterated as a result of the public commentary surrounding the case, the ACT DPP, Shane Drumgold, told the ACT Supreme Court that, quote, the reporting in this matter factually is almost without exception wrong, almost without exception, contrary to the evidence that will be put to this courtroom. As Justice McCallum said, Wilkinson had given her opinion, quote, with the endorsement of a glittering award for good journalism. The DPP Drumgold argued that the Logie Award, quote, was not given for the truth of the story, it was for journalistic skill, unquote, to which Justice McCallum replied, quote, mightn't good journalism be mindful of criminal proceedings and remember to insert the magic word alleged? Which brings us inevitably to section 714, subsection 2 of the ACT Criminal Code, which states that a person commits an offence if, A, the person publishes something that could cause a miscarriage of justice in a legal proceeding, and B, the person is reckless about whether publishing the thing could cause a miscarriage of justice in the proceeding. The maximum penalty is 700 penalty units or imprisonment for seven years or both. Now, a penalty unit in the ACT is a $160 fine, so the maximum fine would be $112,000, imprisonment for seven years or both. Interestingly, on this same case, Lisa Wilkinson tweeted on August 6 last year, quote, on the issue of the 26-year-old man summonsed for the alleged sexual assault of a woman in Parliament House in March 2019, can I implore everyone to respect what's in play here? Naming the man on social media and passing judgment could have dire consequences for the outcome of any trial, unquote. It would seem Lisa Wilkinson has not honoured her own edict. It would also seem that the ACT Chief Justice Lucy McCallum and the DPP Shane Drumgold have more on their hands now than the trial of the matter relating to Brittany Higgins. Look, before we go, Israel's government has collapsed just one year after a coalition was formed to oust the strong 
and effective Benjamin Netanyahu. But you know what it's like the moment you become too effective in politics, jealousy kicks in and the dogs come after you, as was the case with Israel's longest serving prime minister. Netanyahu's one-time chief of staff and political protege, Naftali Bennett, entered into an agreement with the centrist Yair Lapid, where Bennett agreed to serve as prime minister for the first two years and Lapid for the final two years. The deal also included a small Islamist party, the United Arab List, with four seats out of 120 in the Knesset, but the first time an Arab party has been part of a governing coalition. So from different political persuasions and contradictory interests, this coalition was always a motley crew and bound to fail. An announcement from Bennett and Lapid the other day stated that they had, quote, exhausted all efforts to stabilise the coalition, unquote, and therefore the parliament would be dissolved. This means Israel is heading for its fifth general election in less than four years. Heads will be spinning. What changed was that one religious nationalist member defected to the opposition, which is led by Netanyahu, depriving the government of its majority. The government finally fell after its Israeli Arab members refused to renew a law governing Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank. Netanyahu supports the law in principle, but voted against it to bring about the government's collapse. This bloke doesn't muck around, I can tell you. He is a seasoned political operator. The latest polls, though, predict another stalemate, which means the election merry-go-round may start again. Remember Netanyahu failed four times in a row to secure an outright majority for his bloc of right-wing and religious parties, but held on as a caretaker prime minister through election after election. He thinks he can now stage a better campaign this time against the unlikely coalition, hoping it will resonate with the public. Such a political comeback after being PM for 12 years would make a thrilling dinner party story. He's done this before. Netanyahu's first stint as prime minister was in 1996. That ended in 1999 when he was defeated. But then in 2009, he was re-elected and then defeated only last year in 2021 by Bennett, who was a tech millionaire turned politician. Interesting bloke this. Bennett, you see, admired Netanyahu for years, and his memoir actually begins with a note of gratitude to his former boss and ends with an adulatory chapter entitled, What I Learnt From Netanyahu, unquote. Well, obviously not loyalty, with friends like Bennett, who needs enemies. The point is this, in such an uncertain world where there's a growing tide of evil, security is everything in both defence and the economy especially in that part of the world where there is uncertainty surrounding Israel and Palestine. Then there's Iran and its nuclear weapons, then Afghanistan controlled by the Taliban. It's sketchy stuff. Israel, in my view, needs a leader like Netanyahu, proven and strong. Not many of them in the free world. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. I'll see you tomorrow night on ADH TV. Good night.